Welcome to the podcast of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Greenwood, Mississippi. We are a community of Christians that exists to make disciples of Jesus Christ and influence the Delta for the glory of God. More information about Westminster can be found at www.wpcgreenwood.org. Okay, we're back in Luke, uh, Luke Park 88. <clears throat> It's uh, sociologist Robert Wuthnow looked across the landscape of American Christianity. He found something very interesting uh, that prompted him to make just a a surface-level general observation. Uh, After surveying various churches across America, he noted whether or not churches really believed the devil exists and thus preached about the devil seemed to often depend purely upon social class. He said, look at the parking lot outside any church. If you see Lexuses and Cadillacs, it's very likely you won't hear Satan preached inside. But if you see a parking lot full of pickup trucks, oh, you definitely will. Um, It's interesting. You know, it's very interesting in light of of the church in America. A few uh, quotes before we read our passage. Phil Riken said, the devil's cleverest ruse is to make men believe that he does not exist or to give us the false impression that he is a silly old character in a red suit with little horns and a forked tail, or to convince us that his devilish powers are so overwhelming that we're helpless to resist. Martin Luther quipped that, he said, for where God builds a church, there the devil will also build a chapel. John Owen said, temptation is like a knife that may either cut the meat or the throat of a man. It may be his food or his poison, his exercise or his destruction. Well, Revelation 12 notes that Satan uh, is the accuser of the brothers and the sisters who are in Christ. It's uh, that he accuses them day and night before our Lord. And then finally, as as John has already read for us this morning, uh, Peter, uh, having already experienced what Jesus said would happen to him, The once cocky and proud Peter had this to say about our enemy. In 1 Peter, he writes, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. (laughs) What do we do with that? With that kind of information? How can we live with any degree of hope when there's an enemy, a very real enemy, who wants nothing more than to have us? Well, thankfully, so that we don't have to fear By grace, that's exactly what Jesus teaches on this morning in our passage. And so with that, let's dive in to Luke 22, 31 through 38. This is God's word. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And Jesus said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. Well, Jesus said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy a sword. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. 
And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And Jesus said to them, It's enough. This is God's, God's word. Look, before we, we get too deep into this, I think we've got to acknowledge that the elephant, if not in the room, at least in the culture, uh, that, that many people would hear this, hear what we just read, and they'll say, what in the hocus pocus is all this? Well, we live in a post-Christian nation, which means we can no longer assume people have just, at least in a residual uh, biblical view on, on the world. Rather, much of America holds to a, a materialistic worldview that says all that there is, all there ever will be, is the here and the now. It's the material world that we can experience. Um, however, though, if they were honest, many would also say that, ah, that there's still some things the material world can't explain. Right? There's still these things that happen. There, there appears to be something else afoot. Well, Scripture tells us what that something afoot is. You know, scripture tells us that what we experience with our senses isn't all that there is. Uh, in fact, it, it tells us that reality as we know it is, is comprised of two separate realms, the physical realm, what we would call the material world, but then also the, the spiritual uh, realm. In, in fact, much of the New Testament is reminding us of the fact that at any moment there's way more going on than meets the eye. That, that though right now, you know, many of us, we're, we're dressed in our, our Sunday's best, and we are uh, sitting relatively calmly in a relatively comfortable uh, sanctuary. Yet even, even still, even though we're here, there's more going on than meets the eye. That right now, in the spiritual realm, a war is being waged against our, our minds, for our hearts, our, our souls. You know, in Ephesians, Paul reminds us that, hey, look, we don't... Yeah, I know we think we're against each other, but we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Our real problem, our real enemy is against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, that spiritual realm. Okay. Well, in a day where it, some churches are exceedingly trending kind of towards this more self-help direction of how to be a better mom, how to be a better husband all of which, of course, are important things to learn, uh, yet to the Lexus and Cadillac quote, there can be a, a lack in addressing the real problem. That we have a very real enemy who is literally hell-bent on chewing us up and spitting out our bones. That there are very real lies and, and division and shame and fiery arrows launched from this enemy that, that being a better mom or a better husband just it can't defend against. Like, we need an anchor more sure. Like, we, meet, we need a shield more stable. And so we can't underestimate this. We can't neglect to remember the fact that evil exists and Satan is real. And yet, at the same time, as believers, we don't need to overestimate Satan either. You know, there's not a demon behind every bush. Uh, or, or maybe we should say there's not a demon behind every sound system hiss or hum. Or Like, we live in a fallen world, and that means... It's through toil and sweat that anything works like it should. Note to this, J.I. Packer said, Satan should be taken seriously, for malice and cunning make him fearsome, yet not so serious as to pro provoke abject terror of him, for he is a beaten enemy. <laughs> so doctors saw this this week. Doctors out in Phoenix 
they've noted that in some regions, uh, they see a sizable number of patients that come into the hospital suffering from bites from rattlesnakes thought to have been dead. Uh, they said what happens is often they'll find a snake, they'll shoot said snake, or in some way remove the head from the snake. But for up to 60 minutes after the decapitation, the snake head still retains venom. Um, it still retains a reflexive action of, of striking. And, um, you know, people will just get too close to the head and end up getting bit. Well, though Satan was defeated at the cross, you know, to Genesis 3.15, his, his head was crushed. Yet that reflex action of striking, um, at least remains for a while. We're, we find ourselves today in that 60-minute window uh, where he can still strike us, still hurt us, still poison us. And so with that, we, we come to the sifting floor in our passage, which is our first point. You know, if you remember from last week, the disciples had just been talking about who's the greatest. It was their favorite thing to talk about. Who's better than who? And, and Peter apparently was still in that one-up mode. Uh, he said, Jesus, I, I, I don't care what you say. I'm ready to follow you to prison. Heck, I'll follow you to death right now. But all that, of course, we know the story. It turns all that confidence was just self-confidence. Uh, he didn't ask Jesus for more strength to remain faithful. He, he already thought he was strong. And he was confident in himself rather than his confidence being in Christ. But Jesus said, easy there. Before the sun rises, like before the next, this coming morning, you're going to deny me three times. And so what we see here, I mean, it's the story as old as time, isn't it? And one that we would all do well to pay attention to. Uh, this is Noah uh, drunk in his vineyard. It's David lusting from his roof. It's, it's countless Christians and church leaders who have said, I've got this. Like, look, there, there's no way I could fall into that temptation who have fallen into that temptation. And so there's a principle here that the areas where we think we're strongest can be the same areas in which we are most in danger because we fail to see our weakness and our utmost need of Jesus even in that area. So Phil Riken said, we should never think we are beyond the reach of any particular sin or that we can withstand temptation by our own virtue. You know, if, our, if our confidence is in ourselves alone, then we have no confidence in this realm. And you know, so, so Simon, when Simon confessed Jesus to be the Christ, Jesus named him Peter, right? Peter, you are the rock. And it was this strong, like, boulder of a name. Uh, if he were in, the, uh, in Philadelphia in the late 70s, Jesus might have even called him Rocky. Your name is Rocky, or today, the rock. But notice what Jesus called him here. He didn't call him Rocky no, Jesus called him Simon, you know, perhaps to remind him, oh, by the way, you actually are frail. You, you, you're not always rocky. He said Simon, he says it twice to, you know, for emphasis. Simon, like, like look at me. Like, like, hear what I'm about to tell you. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. You know, we know at this point, Peter was already emerging as, as the leader of the disciples uh, plus, he was the first to profess faith that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ. And so, possibly Satan thought that if he could take Peter down, the rest would follow like a house of cards. Um, so there's, there's that. 
But then, in the original Greek, there's something very striking that doesn't come across in our English translations right here in this verse. You know, when Jesus said, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, that, that you, there isn't the Greek singular pronoun, uh, which is su. No, it's, some, it's imas, uh, which is plural, right? It's, it's, if, Jesus, if this happened in Mississippi, Jesus would have said, Satan demanded to have all of y'all, like to have y'all, all of the disciples. Which means, yes, on that night Jesus was betrayed, Simon was particularly sifted, yet even still Satan also wants nothing more than to sift you, like to sift you and your family as well. So sifting, look, know this, sifting was a process wheat farmers used to uh, separate the, the wheat kernel, the grain, from the waste, the rest of the stalk. Uh, and it's not unlike a combine, right? The, the combine... Uh, cuts, the, like, cuts the entire plant down in, in the field. And through a series of mechanisms and fans, it, it magically somehow puts the kernel of grain into the hopper and blows the waste you know, out of the back of the combine. But as farmers know, it's not a like 100% perfect system. Um, all the kernels of grain do not make it to the hopper. Um, there's some breakage, as you could say. You know, go to any field that's been harvested and you'll see that some of the good grain got blown out the back with the rest of the, the waste. Well, that's it. You know, that's what Satan's after. Satan's desire to sift you is to crush you so that you're blown away and never return. But God's desire in the sifting is to blow away all the chaff, right? to burn off the dross and leave you more in the image of Jesus than you started. Look, I think sometimes Satan is, is grossly mischaracterized. You know, growing up, I was just convinced that Satan wanted nothing more than for me to smoke, uh, to dip, and for whatever reason, watch Terminator 2. It wasn't Terminator 1, just Terminator 2. I mean, and I'm like, he's trying to corrupt my little self-righteous self. But don't, that's thinking a little small, isn't it? You know, if, if we were in a chess match, those are all just pawns. Satan's end game isn't to make you watch Terminator 2 or, or to like make you cuss. No, no, his end game is to crush you and rob you of your faith. As Charles Spurgeon said, the point of Satan's chief attack on a believer is their faith. That, that we are engrafted into Christ by faith, and faith is that point of contact between the believing soul and the living Christ. He says, if therefore Satan could manage to cut the graph just there, then he would defeat the Savior's work most completely. And so Satan wants us to see other things as shinier and happier and better than our Savior. It's to convince you that you don't need saving, that, that you're it in a bag of potato chips. And if you don't need saving, then who the heck needs Jesus? And that is where the sifting floor comes in. You know, Satan uses all sorts of techniques to sift, doesn't he? He uses success and poverty, comfort, um, hard. Uh, he uses boredom. He uses busyness. All with the end goal of shattering your faith and, and undoing you. And to cause you to question and doubt everything you've held to be true about Jesus. It's, it's things like, okay, is, well, is God real? And if God is real, is he I mean, is he actually good? Does he really save? Like, does his grace 
really go to a sinner like me? It's jarring. And for Satan to tempt us to doubt is the darkest place our soul can know. And so that's what a sifted soul feels like. And not only are you exposed as the sinner that you are, but like, there's no escape. <laughs> there's no covering, no future. There's no hope. And so to be sifted is for your whole world. Like your faith, your health, your life, to just feel like it's just falling apart at the seams. And what's worse is it can be so isolating. You know, Simon's sifting took place away from Christian fellowship. And, you know, that night when he was betrayed, he was kind of alone. And then after he did deny Jesus three times, he, he ran even further to be alone. To quote Spurgeon again, Satan always hates Christian fellowship. Like, it is his policy to keep Christians apart. Anything which can divide saints from one another, he delights in. He loves. Spurgeon says that Satan attaches far more importance to godly fellowship than we do. Since union is strength, he does his best to promote separation. And look, could it be that even like part of Satan's sifting is simply separating you from gospel fellowship? In Tolkien's The Fellowship of the Ring, there's this great scene. Uh, it didn't make it to the movie, but it's in the book, this great scene. And it, look, if you know the story, I know, some, not everybody's into fantasy. Uh, but it's this it's this wild story about this small, diverse group of people who band together to go on this mission to destroy this ring of power of this dark, uh, evil dark lord. And, and the fellowship of the ring, this, this group of people is comprised of two humans, a dwarf, an elf, four hobbits, and a wizard. And so it's different people, different races. I mean, they're just so different, but they're united on this mission. And yet in the book, before the mission is even hardly off to a start, uh, they're at each other's throats. Uh, in, in the book, some, some harsh words are talked about, you know, you know, who you are and different uh, race relations. And so it's harsh words, raised axes, drawn bows. I mean, they're about to kill each other. But when things eventually calmed down, one of the fellowship, in essence, said, the dark, the dark Lord shows his greatest power when he can divide those who oppose him. You know, sometimes division is necessary, but, you know, other times it could just be Satan taking God's people to the sifting floor. You know, and that's why we have all this encouragement throughout the New Testament to reconcile, reconcile to believers. Um, so it happened to Peter, it's, it's happened to me, it will happen to all who are in Christ, the sifting. Which brings us to our second uh, point, brief point, uh, swords. You know, Luke has already recorded on two other occasions prior that Jesus sent out his disciples to go minister with no provision, right? Because Jesus, it wasn't because he wanted them to take a vow of poverty, but Jesus knew that the people were going to be so eager to receive the gospel teaching that his disciples could, well, they would be taken care of through gospel hospitality. Just, just travel light, you'll be taken care of. But this time, Jesus knew that's not going to be the case. So another principle here is though, you know, yes, we, we trust and we depend on God for our daily bread, our daily needs. Um, that doesn't mean we let go and let God. Of course God provides. But there are times when God calls us to pursue wisdom, right, in planning and preparing for what's ahead. 
And Jesus, he, we know he's soon to be arrested. To be put, he's going to be put on trial. He is going to be numbered with the transgressors, literally killed between two criminals. And Jesus knew in that culture his followers would be seen the same way. And so in Matthew earlier, Jesus said, I am sending you out like a sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. In other words, take the gospel of grace to the world, but don't be stupid. Be, be prepared for the wolves that are out there. Um, y'all, some of y'all remember this in the mid-1900s and then really up to the early 2000s, the church in China has just exploded, right? Just, I mean, millions of, of new Christians in China. And as a result of that, the Chinese government is, has done everything that they can to, to persecute the church, to shut that, shut that off. Well, in, in light of that, um, one uh, missionary organization, uh, before they send any missionaries to China, uh, they first give their missionaries intense training. And, and so some, looking through some of their materials, some was how to reach across cu- like cultural boundaries, right? how to best evangelize certain people groups, um, how to suffer, how to die uh, for the Lord. Even literally, part of their training was how to escape captivity. Can you imagine that? Uh, one of the leaders said, quote, We know that sometimes the Lord sends us to prison to witness for him. But we also believe that the devil sometimes wants us in prison to stop the ministry God has called us to do. So, (laughs) we teach our missionaries special skills, uh, such as how to free themselves from handcuffs within 30 seconds, and how to jump from second-story windows without injuring themselves. Can you imagine that? And look, I know that (laughs) that sounds so foreign to our evangelism training in America. It's like, knock on the door, ask a few questions. Um, but this is very much in keeping with what Jesus is teaching here. Like, be prepared. The road of following him is, is hard, which brings us to the sword, right? At the end of verse 36, Jesus said, Let the one who has no sword sell his cloak, sell his shirt, and go buy, buy a sword. All right, so, so what's up with this? Um, well, there's, of course, lots of views on this verse, and there's really two large opposing views on how to handle this. Some Christians have argued that Jesus is being literal here, and they have made arguments for for arming up uh, and even using physical violence in the name of advancing the kingdom. And and listen, look, I love knives and I love guns as much of it as at least, I definitely don't love them as much as some of you, but at least as much as a few of you. that, that doesn't seem to be the clearest, most accurate in context of what Jesus is teaching. Rather, nearly all the best scholars agree that Jesus is speaking metaphorically about the sword. Uh, for one, because he said, if you don't have a sword, you need to sell your shirt and you need to get a sword. But then at the end, when they only produce, hey, look, we, okay, we got two swords. Jesus said, okay, that's, that's fine. That's enough. Um, well, if he wanted all of his disciples to arm up, then obviously two swords aren't enough. Like, they all need to be going and getting a sword. Well, if he wanted, um, okay, well then second, scholars argue that that Greek phrase, it is enough, is more in line with our version of, parents do this with kids all the time, it's like, good grief. Um, I can't get through to you knuckleheads. Enough with all this. I'm not talking about a literal sword, okay? Um, that's, That's kind of the, 
yeah, the sense of that phrase. And so during Jesus' day, the sword was a very common symbol, metaphor uh, for conflict. It, it meant that perilous times were coming and the disciples would need to be prepared as gospel warriors to wage a spiritual battle. You know, it's, it's been said that in times of war, especially in the ancient world, in, the t- in times of war, a warrior would sell everything they had to acquire the one thing they needed to fight. They would sell their clothes. They would sell everything just to get a sword. Uh, they would do everything they could do to get ready for the conflict. Okay. Well, this is Jesus saying, look, the, the enemy's at the gate, guys. Uh, things are about to go sideways. Get ready. Get ready for spiritual war. Which begs the question then, how, okay, how is this even possible? How could they, and then how can we possibly stand fast in this battle? Well, Jesus tells us, doesn't he? He reminds us that we're safe in him, which is our last point. This, is, this will be how we close. Hebrews tells us again and again that Jesus is the true and better high priest. Uh, and that is on full display here. Jesus identifies with our, with our need. He identifies with our sin. He quotes Isaiah 43 and saying, this is, that's about me. He says, I have come to be numbered amongst the transgressors. And, and y'all, on the cross, that's exactly what happened. He who knew no sin not only died for our sin, but he became our sin on the cross, taking the full punishment that our sin deserves. But if you are in Christ, not only did he take your sin, but we learned that he gives you his righteousness. He, he doesn't just identify with you, but no, no, now we, in Christ, identify with him. But that's not all. Second, Isaiah 43 also tells us that Jesus, the suffering servant, would also come to atone for us, which means his sacrifice cleanses. It, it, it covers, it covers over our shame and our sin, and it reconciles us back to a right relationship with our Heavenly Father. And so that's, that's the gospel message. And yet, even still, it gets better. As our, our better priest, he doesn't just identify with us, you know, empathize, he doesn't just atone for us, but he also prays for us. And it's so encouraging to know that Jesus knows what you need better than you do. And sometimes we wear out and we have to go to sleep when we're praying. Uh, Jesus doesn't. He's always, always praying for you. <laughs> John Patridge, when he was helping teach uh, Ephesians study, he made some comments. He said, and he wanted me, as a result of this, maybe to one day think about do a sermon series called Don't Lose That Butt. Okay? Um, well, to that... <laughs> uh, this is definitely one of the most beautiful butts in the whole Bible. Um, check this thing out. Behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. Wow. You know, if, if you've ever been to... That point where, like, man, you're really struggling. Satan is having, his, having a heyday with you. What, what better encouragement than the fact that your Savior is holding on to you? Like, he's, he's not going to, he, he's got you. So, Westminster, how do we hold fast in the sifting? We hold to the promise that it's not us holding on. <laughs> Praise God. 
Um, but it's our great Savior, Jesus, who is holding on to us. It's that just like Peter, Christ will not lose any of his own. None can snatch us from his hand. And when by grace our little kernel of faith survives the sifting, what Satan meant for harm, God always uses for good to come back and to strengthen others. So how do we hold fast? It is resting in Jesus who is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Amen? Amen. Well, let, me, let me pray for us. Our Father, thank you for this one alarming message, alarming teaching that man, there's somebody who like, literally wants to undo us, completely shatter us. Um, so, Father, help us to see what's, what's afoot, um, that these little, small little temptations that we have is not, there's more going on than we even can see. Uh, Father, give us the strength and give us the grace in the midst of temptation and in the midst of sifting to see Jesus as more beautiful. Um, and, and armed with that beauty uh, to be able to fight and to stand against Satan's ploys. Uh, Father, thank you that Jesus uh, prays for us, uh, that he, he keeps us, that he, um, that he will hold us fast. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Hi, Richard Owens here. I just wanted to take a second to say thank you for listening to the podcast of Westminster Presbyterian Church. Our prayer is that the Lord would use this message to encourage you in the gospel and that you would find Jesus to be more beautiful than you ever, ever imagined. If you'd like to find out more about who Jesus is or more about our church, I invite you to visit our website at wpcgreenwood.org. God bless.